I'm Bronwyn Maddox, I'm Director of the Institute for Government, and I'm delighted to be uh, here this evening with this, which I will wave at the live stream camera, and very warm welcome uh, to all of you. Um, uh, the book by John Kay, Mervyn King, here tonight, uh, Radical Uncertainty, Decision-Making for an Unknowable Future, which we're going to plunge into discussing. Uh, before we do, uh, we've got even more housekeeping arrangements uh, than we normally do uh, in these days. Um, just to say that it is uh, being live streamed, and if the fire alarm sounds, uh, please go out down the stairs. Um, and, uh, and, that, and that's just about it. There are no special coronavirus ones in response to the government's uh, uh, press conference. But um, um, uh, thank you all for uh, coming, in any case, in these uh, coronavirus days. Um, we're going to um, um, kick off with this very interesting book. I mean, um, we're going to plunge really straight into discussing it. And Gemma Tetlow, our chief economist who's here today, is also going to fire some questions at them. And I'm going to leave good time for questions because I have had um, quite a bit of notice that I think uh, some people really want to ask them. And so, um, John and Mervyn, thank you very much indeed for coming. Well, uh, uh, more or less the beginning of your UK leg of your book tour. It is. Um, well, not quite. I think start the week and then this morning we're, um, we're, we're really the beginning. Let's, let's um, start off with perhaps, Mervyn, if you could tell us <coughs> why you both um, set about writing this book. A long time ago, John and I wrote another book on the British tax system 40 years ago. It's the most amusing book ever written on the British tax system. <laughs> and it's still available in all good antiquarian bookshops. <laughs> and our careers afterwards then sort of diverged somewhat. Uh, John ran the Institute for Fiscal Studies, um, ran the Oxford Business School, ran a very successful business consultancy, did a lot of work in the area of business economics with businesses, both non-financial and financial. And I was an academic for the first half of my career and then went to the Bank of England and, and thought about financial issues from the policy perspective. So we were coming at issues from rather different directions. But after the financial crisis, particularly around the time when I left the Bank of England, when we talked about what we were thinking about, we discovered, by chance really, that we had both come to the view from different perspectives that our understanding of either business economics or what was going on in the financial crisis, we couldn't really understand it without thinking in terms of what we call radical uncertainty. Uh, and the, the distinction between risk and uncertainty, which had been abandoned by the economics profession at the end of the Second World War, was a serious mistake, and that to understand what had happened you really had to think in terms of, of radical uncertainty. And because this is absolutely central to your argument in this book, do you, you want to just tell us briefly what the difference between risk and uncertainty was that economists, as you say, went on to uh, forget? So this was a distinction introduced by Frank Knight uh, a century ago uh, and used by Maynard Keynes, particularly in the general theory. And risk is about events that you can attach probabilities to and in that way, come to believe that you can price risk. Uncertainty, and Keynes was very explicit about this, refers to events that you can't either contemplate in advance, or certainly you have no idea what the probabilities are that they will occur. 
And you can't price that, and therefore you can't tame uncertainty in the sense of believing somehow that you can encapsulate the damage created by uncertainty in the form of prices of instruments, uh, create new financial instruments to price all risk, and therefore allocate risk to those people best able to bear it uh, and supplied by those people best equipped to create these instruments. And that clearly didn't work in the financial mm. crisis where we discovered that the people who bought many of the financial instruments were those least able to bear it and certainly well, least un able to understand it. I'm going to, come on, I'm going to come on to all that and indeed mm. what happened in the financial crisis. But John, I mean, if you, perhaps you can unpack this a bit for us. Uh, why radical uncertainty? Yeah, um, I think it's worth elaborating that by the time Keynes and Knight were writing, Mervyn was describing, risk had already taken on a rather different meaning to the one it has for ordinary people in ordinary language. For ordinary people, risk is something bad. It's not probability or volatility. Risk is something nasty. No one ever says there's a, a risk I might win the national lottery or even that there's a risk I might not win the national lottery because people don't realistically expect to win the national lottery. So risk had already taken on a meaning different from its uh, everyday meaning. But what Keynes and Knight and other people writing in the 1920s was clear about was there was uncertainty of a kind which you could not quantify in this kind of way using probabilistic, probabilistic, probabilistic reasoning. And that's the battle which Keynes and Knight fought uh, in the 1920s and 1930s, and a battle which they lost. Because after the Second World War, there was essentially an American school which took over economics and had a very large influence on the practical world that said you can quantify absolutely every kind of uncertainty in terms of probabilities. Now, if we ask what uncertainty is, Uncertainty arises because of imperfect information. And uh, uncertainty can be resolvable, as we describe it, in one of two ways. It's resolvable either because you can get more information and that deals with the uncertainty. Or it's resolvable because you can describe it probabilistically, as in a card game or spinning a roulette wheel. And then the uncertainty is what is left. Sorry, even, you were saying uncertainty. You meant risk there. Uh, and no. Then you said, Sorry. No. Un, um, radical uncertainty right. is what is left. Right. There's resolvable right. uncertainty right. and there's radical uncertainty. Right. So radical uncertainty is what is left when you've mm. got all the information uh, you, need, you might be able to get or when you know about what the underlying mm. probability distribution is and you still don't have enough, you don't have enough information to make a to you don't have all the information you might need in order to make a decision. And are you saying in some of these cases that it's actually meaningless to ask that question? It is meaningless. And we've an example at the moment of the coronavirus. The coronavirus, uh, the, a global pandemic is a likely event. We've known that this might happen for quite a long time. If you ask what is the probability that coronavirus would break out in Wuhan in China in December 2019? That's just a stupid question. Nobody has the slightest idea what the answer to that is. Uh, it's not helpful to frame that kind of uncertainty in terms of probabilities. 
So radical uncertainty is more than just those things that you can't imagine ever happening. That is certainly part of it, but it goes much wider than that. As John said, you know, the classic example is now the coronavirus. You knew that it could happen, but you certainly didn't know enough about it to know how serious it would be, how quickly it would spread, when it would break out, where it would come from. Uh, and all of those things are vital to be able to make any decisions. I, I'm going to come to Gemma in a second. I, I suspect there's quite a bit to say on this. But, um, and so you're distinguishing it also from uh, cases where, for example, that are going to turn on human intention. Um, will Israel bomb Iran? That, that kind of thing. Or will uh, Putin decide to stay president no, of Russia that, forever? The, the, that's a very or, important or you, kind yeah. of uncertainty. And there's an uncertain... Well, one, one way of looking at it is, ask that question, what is the probability of a coronavirus breaking out in China in 2019? That seems a silly question. Now, people who are obsessive about trying to attach probabilities to these things, and a good example would be Nate Silver, who many of you will know as the US political pundit, who has done quite well in predicting the results of some US elections. But Silver, as I say, is an absolutely committed Bayesian. So in his book, The Noise and the Signal, he asks, quite reasonably, you can see the question, what is the probability of the Twin Towers uh, being uh, hit by aeroplanes on September, in September 2001? And he comes up with an answer to that. It's 1 in 12,500. How does he get that number? Well, the answer is this, you, or I can tell you the calculation he did, which is that after, since the Second World War, before 2001, there were two incidents in which aeroplanes flew into tall buildings in Manhattan. So you take the number of days between 1945 and 2001, which is 25,000, and you divide it by two, uh, and the answer is one in 12,500. Now, there are two things we can learn from that. One is that this kind of exercise is plainly absurd. But the second is to say, what would make it a sensible exercise? Now, imagine a model in which there's a fixed population of high buildings in Manhattan, and you have airplanes flying randomly around Manhattan, and sometimes, not very often, they fly into these not tall buildings. And then that's what physicists would call a negotic process in which when you observe the incidents in which they actually do, you gather more information over time about the underlying probability distribution. And there are lots of processes in physics which are like that. The thing is, there aren't processes in business and politics and finance and economics that are like that. And it's the mistake of thinking you can apply these methods from physical models, which work quite well in some of these contexts, to uh, the kind of problems we face in, in business and finance. How widely do you think this critique applies to economists? I mean, how many of them out there do you think are really <coughs> using this spurious inference from past data to spuriously predict the probabilities of events that really do matter? Well, I think ra rather a lot. And I think our concern is that the you know, a typical economics course and the way economists would think about this is to say, uh, we know how people behave. You know, they maximize their utility. 
And they do that because they can attach probabilities to every conceivable event. And you need to make that assumption in order to generate a model in which people optimize and maximize things. But the fun of economics is not really thinking about the axioms, so that in lecture one, you gloss over the significance of these axioms. You don't ask the question, do people, is it really sensible to make these assumptions? You gloss over it, and then you get onto the action. And the reason why this line of thinking has proved so seductive is that it gives you answers. In other words, to go back to the discussion of radical uncertainty, another way of thinking about it is a distinction between puzzles and mysteries. Puzzles are things which can be very difficult to solve, but there is an answer. And when you've got there, you know what the answer is. And if you, it's a very difficult problem in economics, then you solve the puzzle, you get a Nobel Prize. The difficulty of the mystery is that there isn't necessarily an answer, and after the event, you must, may not know whether you've got the right solution or not. And the, I think it's so seductive for economists to think, you know, how, how can we model the way people behave, what will companies do faced with a certain change in government policy, how will individuals react? And making the assumption that people can attach probabilities to all events gives you the key to coming up with an answer to all of these things. Now, in some cases, it is, of course, perfectly reasonable. And, but in many cases, it isn't. And what we talk about in, in the book is that some of the most useful models in economics are the ones that don't attempt to quantify the, the result. They, they discuss issues analytically. They help you think about the, how to frame the argument. Uh, and you, what you get out of these models are parables, insights into the way the world works. David Ricardo talked about the comparative advantage, which explains why it is that countries which are absolutely better at producing things, everything, than another country can still benefit from trading with that other country, which is a bit counterintuitive. Uh, but in fact, uh, it's a very helpful insight. But David Ricardo said nothing of any value about the empirical patterns of trade between England and Portugal, which was his analogy that he was using. But the insights are fundamentally important. And that's what economics can give you, is really useful insights. Where it starts to get on more tricky ground is when it pretends that it can make quantitative statements that involve issues connected with radical uncertainty. Is that, is that your view of economics? So, so uh, no. I, mean, I guess that's you're being rather, rather polite. <laughs> yeah. Um. yeah, I mean, perhaps I've been lucky in the bits of the areas of economics I've worked in, but most of what I have observed economists doing in my career is very much what you just described, sort of using economic ways of thinking, simplified models to help think about the way the world works, but without putting, without expecting that your model perfectly predicts what's going to happen. But it just provides you with a useful framework in which to think about, we have some options here, which one might we want to go for, or what are the risks if we choose option A and shut down option B instead. Um, but it gives you a way of thinking about it rather than putting a lot of detail on that. First of all, Gemma, you're right there. This is a proposition about economics. And it's important to say that economics, economic models are parables rather than things that give you numbers. Now, once you've said that, you will stop having Bank of England and OBR forecasting models, for example. You will actually shut down really quite a lot of what people in investment banks are doing, which they claim is economics. Uh, this is not what economic models are about. 
the famous model that won George Akerlof the Nobel Prize, which is um, the so-called Lemons model, which tries to explain why markets with imperfect information don't work terribly well. And he used an illustration, which I've used also, uh, from the used car market to demonstrate that point. And I remember once explaining that to an audience and someone got up from the back of the room and said, I'm from the Secretary of the Retail Motor Federation, which is the trade association for used car dealers in the United Kingdom. And I can tell you that this model is a monstrous libel on our honest, hard-working members. And setting aside the question of whether his description of his membership was true, he had missed the point, which is Akerlof was not actually writing about used cars. He was telling a parable which may or may not be applicable in different situations. But Gemma, you asked um, about the extent to which economists use it. Um, if, econ if it was only economists who approach things in this kind of way, we wouldn't have the kind of problem which I think we do have. And the misuse of probabilistic reasoning has extended far beyond economists, and it's probably much more damaging in areas that aren't about economics. We've talked a little bit about the financial modeling that led up to the, the crisis. We might talk about actuaries who use this kind of thing and who really believe the underlying numbers. There is a whole profession of consultancies who will build you models of almost anything you want. And they all have this structure of believing that if you build a black box and you put enough numbers in, in it, then you will get out an answer to either the forecast you want or the decision problem you want. And if you query this process, well, the, the typical answer will be, tell me what numbers you want me to put in and I will shove them through my black box. And, and so picking up the point um, that you both touched on about the financial crisis, your, your, your charge is that governments thought that they, the risk there uh, was, was risk that could be expressed by probabilities that they had hedged against it uh, and that therefore they didn't need to worry in some sense. So I, mean, I think a good example is the international regulation of banks and the capital requirements imposed on banks, the amount of equity that banks have to issue so that they're in a position to absorb losses. And before, just before the financial crisis, the Basel system, very bright people from around the world, <clears throat> came together and designed a Basel II framework. And each bank was told, well, these are the various assets on your balance sheet. These are the weights you have to attach to these assets in order for us to calculate the amount of capital that you have to issue so you can absorb losses. And that system came into effect in England in the beginning of 2007. And a few months later on, Northern Rock applied these regulations to its own balance sheet and was able to announce publicly that it was the best capitalized bank in the United Kingdom, which was true according to the Basel II formulae. Well, a few weeks later on, Northern Rock literally ran out of money. And what was wrong, of course, were two things. One is that on the asset side of bank balance sheets, the people who designed all these said, well, we have to have numbers. So let's look at the past data. What data can we get? The data was for the previous you know, 30 years. And let's calculate how risky 
various assets seem to be in terms of their volatility over the past 30 years and assume, because what else could we do if we want to make up a number, that that will be the same in the future. And so they concluded that the safest kind of lending for banks to carry out was mortgage lending because house prices only ever go up. Well, they discovered that wasn't true. And then on the liability side of the bank's balance sheet, no account at all was taken of the risk that a bank might find that those people that were lending to it short term would either ask for their money back if they were depositors or not roll over short term loans to the banks. And so they would simply run out of cash. And neither of these were in the regulatory framework at all because the focus was on we have to have a number to design the regulations. Where can we get these numbers from? Instead of asking, so, you know, what do we know about banking over the last two or three hundred years? What could go badly wrong? What could go badly wrong? And the answer was not to look at numbers drawn from a period when banking had been perfectly fine, rather than recognize, as history would have told you, that banks can get into deep trouble. And it was this focus on having to have a number, you know, doing all the fancy calculations, produce something that was completely irrelevant to trying to predict which bank might fail and which bank might not. So the anecdote with which we begin the book is that when the financial crisis started to break in August 2007, David Vineyard, who was then CFO of Goldman Sachs, said, we've experienced 25 standard deviation events several days in a row. Now, if you know anything about statistics, you know you don't experience 25 standard deviation events at all, far less several days in a row. This wasn't what happened and couldn't have happened. What he should have said was that we've experienced events which are 25 standard deviation events within the context of the Goldman Sachs model. But to turn a probability from the Goldman Sachs model into a probability about the world, you have to multiply the probability from the model by the probability that the model is true, whatever that means. And I don't know what that means, and I certainly don't know what the, what the probability is. The lesson which goes to the heart of all of this is you cannot actually derive a probability about the world from this kind of model. And that goes back to this misunderstanding of what the role and purpose of models actually is. Can I just probe on that? I mean, it's quite clearly absurd for Goldman Sachs to say they had any idea what a 25 standard deviation move was, or let alone that that was one of them. Um, but you were talking before about we don't know you couldn't have come up with a probability for coronavirus hitting Wuhan in December 2019. But, so what's good policy making look like? Because clearly if you are sitting within the Treasury or the Department of Health, you don't need to know the answer to is it going to hit Wuhan in 2019, but you do need to think, do we have the NHS and other <coughs> aspects of public policy set up in such a way that we are sufficiently robust to the chance that a pandemic could hit the UK? So what does good policy making then look like if it's not right. building a So you've mentioned a key word already, which is robust. So the, the way one ought to think about these kind of wicked problems, which is one way in which this, these have been described, wicked problems are mysteries rather than puzzles. Wicked problems are things where the problem is not precisely defined and you may not know the answer to it even after the event. But you have to provide for these. And the, the global pandemic is clearly one of these. 
No, you can't, or we've explained why you can't and shouldn't make up loads of numbers to describe these kind of situations. What you should, can do instead, and what you should be doing generally, whether you're in finance or business or politics or in your personal life, is you construct what we call a reference narrative. And what we mean by reference narrative is basically what, what it is you want and expect to happen. It's a realistic story for the future. And people actually naturally think stories, not probabilities. And they do that for good reasons. They do it because the areas of life in which probabilities are helpful is quite limited. So you can build a story of response to pandemics and you're trying to ask the questions, are we building a system that is robust to the various kinds of pandemics that could arise? Is it resilient in the face of other challenges that might be faced as a result of this? So we're looking for strategies that are robust and resilient and we're doing that rather than trying to pretend we can anticipate in some quantitative way what will happen and provide for it. Can I give you another example based on regulation of banks? The, no one knows where the next crisis will come from, what events could trigger a lack of confidence in the banking system. But what you do know is that if there is a lack of confidence in the banking system or a problem hits the banking system, banks will need to have sufficient equity finance to absorb losses. So instead of worrying about precisely where will the next crisis come from and devoting lots of resources to you know, horizon scanning <coughs> of trying to work out where are the risks. I remember at the bank that we had a financial stability report and people were very keen to identify the risks facing the system. The trouble was every three months they'd come to me and they'd say, so here's our latest analysis of risks. And there'd be 67 risks. And I said, I can't cope with 67 risks. What's going on? What, what worries you about the financial system? And that was not something which a large you know, group of people easily come to collectively. So for the banking system, the two things that you know that you would be a robust and resilient response to wherever the problems were coming from are one, enough capital in the banking system. There is no unique answer to the question how much capital should banks issue at all. And it's a mistake to think that there is a number out there to do it. But you have to make a, you know, what seems a sensible common sense judgment about how much capital to ask banks to issue. And secondly, did you know that even a bank that seems in good shape, if it suddenly loses, for some reason, people lose confidence, that it will find itself in a cash crisis and it will need to turn to the central bank for money. So you need to develop processes in advance to make it easy for banks to go to the central bank and for central banks to lend against the collateral that the commercial banks will offer uh, in a way that doesn't put taxpayers' money at risk. These are robust and resilient responses. And there is no single answer. That you can't claim these are optimum responses necessarily, but robustness and resilience are the key. I, I can see that, uh, and I think a lot of people find that very persuasive. But one of the things I have to say that, that bothered me a bit um, reading your book was the way um, you focus on some, if you like, unique events that have happened, like Steve Jobs uh, uh, inventing the iPhone um, or um, the 9-11 uh, 
hijackers flying planes into the Twin Towers at that, at that point. Uh, and, and, and say quite you know, rightly and very persuasively, it seems absurd to try and attach probability to that thing. On the other hand, those are populations of you know, much wider things. And the intelligence services do, for example, now go about um, trying to estimate the probability of, of, of terrorist attacks. And yes, they, 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 uh, they don't simply model these things. They try and work out you know, whether they're more likely to get, detect ones that involve large numbers of people and find it very hard to detect those where it's single people and so on. Um, but um, they, they uh, and in the end, do come down to the kind of answer, um, as do many prime ministers uh, that you've just outlined, of saying, well, look, let's have something that can respond in some resilient way. But they do try and give themselves uh, a sense um, of where between all of those attacks getting through and none of them, they should sort of, um, they, they, they should base their planning. Um, exactly. And we're really talking, when we talk about radical uncertainty, about the world in between things we don't know anything about at all what Taleb famously called black swans, which are, you can't have a probability of inventing the wheel, because if you could imagine a probability of inventing the wheel, you've already invented the wheel. So the, whole, the concept there is, is in this sense absurd. Why is but, it different from inventing a coronavirus vaccine, which you can imagine, but we don't have Well, you, the, the, that is exactly the difference. You can imagine it, you just haven't all done right, it all yet. Right, so it's, a, yes. it's embedded in the concept. So, right. so, so the black, the black swan was the event that you couldn't attach a probability to because you couldn't imagine what it was. And the coronavirus is exactly the, the case. You can in, imagine the, prob the, the, the event, but you cannot attach a probability to it. Or you cannot define the problem sufficiently closely to attach a probability to it. Now, you've rightly talked about the intelligence services, and we'd emphasize that the second signature example we use in opening the book is actually Obama ordering the SEALs into the Bin Laden compound at Abbottabad. And after the intelligence failures of the Iraq war, U.S. security agencies were told, you have to present your findings in probabilistic terms. So that was what happened at that meeting. And people presented Obama with probabilities that the man who'd been observed in the compound was bin Laden. And these probabilities ranged from 25 to 95%. And at the end of being presented with these things, Obama said, Look, guys, it's a flip of a coin, isn't it? It's 50-50. By which he didn't mean that the probability that the man in the compound is Bin Laden is 0.5. He meant he didn't know, and we didn't, we the Americans didn't know, and we have to make a decision anyway. We have to make a judgment, taking into account both the uncertainty that surrounds the presence of Bin Laden and all the other uncertainties which surrounded the, the raid. And actually, we make quite a bit in the book about the distinction between mysteries and puzzles. And that's a distinction that actually comes from Greg, Greg Treverton, who was actually one of Obama's national intelligence chiefs. And Treverton described a puzzle as something where you can define the problem and you have a solution to it. And once you've found the solution, which may be difficult, but once you've found the solution, Competent observers will agree that that is the solution. Whereas the mystery 
is where the problem is not so well defined uh, and you don't, often don't know quite what the answer was even after the event. Philip Tetlock, whose work some of you may be familiar with, was this good judgment project trying to appraise forecasters. You've probably noticed the super forecasters not being wanted in 10 Downing Street after all. He's a super forecaster in terms of Tetlock's project. And what Tetlock has done has to been to evaluate the quality of various forecasts. The trouble is, if you look at what he, the questions which he poses in order to get an assessment of the quality of the forecast, they're really rather uninteresting questions. They're questions like, you know, will the Donbass region of the Ukraine be given a special legal status in uh, March 2020? Or will there be US unemployment rate exceed 4% in more than one quarter of 2020? Now, these are things that are precise answers. Uh, and you can test whether people get them right or not. But they're not really the kind of things you want to know. What you want to know is, in a much looser sense, what's going to happen in the Ukraine? Uh, is the US economy moving into recession? And these are not questions which can be formulated in this kind of way. Part of the importance of that distinction is it, it makes you realize what you can actually easily do with artificial intelligence and what you can't. AI is very good now at playing chess or Go or something like that. But the characteristics of chess are you know what the rules are, and after the game is finished, you know who's won. But most of the problems we deal with are not actually like that, and they're much harder for AI to, to tackle effectively. Well, we could dig into these things a lot. It's a very rich book with lots of examples. It's very readable. I, I, I'm sorry, I can feel myself picking at even what you've said already, because I don't think my example of trying to find out how many of 5,000, say, terrorist attempts a year gets through is actually quite the same apart from being to do with terrorists as your example of going to shoot bin Laden. Was he, was he there or not? But we could, we could pursue that. And I want to come on in a second to um, what you think people should do about it. Um, Gemma, do you, do you want to come in at, at this, this point on this? Yes, and I suppose I'd just be interested in your, you're very clear that you think it's irrelevant to put very precise probabilities on things and try and model very precisely what's going to happen in future. And I can see areas where that's obviously failed in the past. But I just wonder, like, how much of a sense of, if we take the coronavirus, and you, you, you talked about what robust policy and resilient policy looks like, but there's clearly a decision for any government between tying up vast quantities of money in having NHS facilities sitting there empty just in case we have a pandemic and we need to hospitalise vast numbers of people and put them on respirators. We, we choose not to do that. So we choose a robust policy framework that's somewhere less than that. So policymakers must have in their mind some probability that there's going to be a pandem pandemic and they're going to regret the fact that they didn't have 50 NHS hospitals sitting there to deal with hundreds of thousands of cases. So, I, just, uh, so I, I, mean, I agree with everything you said, apart from using the word probability, because it's certainly important for governments to recognise that there could be a pandemic, and maybe that they think it's likely that at some point there'll be a pandemic. But I would say that nothing is gained by making up a number to say, actually the probability of a pandemic is 
because we, we have no idea and it doesn't help to make up a number that will in the end just confuse the argument. What has to happen is that you ask the question, so, you know, really what's going on here with this? Is this a serious pandemic or not? And there's no easy answer to any of these things, but probabilities don't help. So let me give you one example from the past involving WHO, <coughs> which I think brings this home rather neatly. When AIDS first started to spread, WHO was very worried about how quickly it would spread in Southern Africa. So they built a very complex black box model of demographics in each of the countries in Southern Africa and linked them together. Very complex computing project, very detailed. One of the key parameters in the model <coughs> was the average number of sexual contacts per person per year. And they put a number in based on some observations, made it up, essentially put it in. And they invited then Bob May, who was our chief government scientist for a while, very distinguished mathematician, physicist, biologist, to come and have a look at this. And he didn't get involved in the entrails of the model. He said to them, OK, guys, so what's, what's going on here? You've got a parameter called the average number of sexual contacts per year, and you've never asked yourself the basic question, does it matter whether the average number of contacts, say it's 100 a year, does it matter that it's 100 with the same person or 100 with 100 different people? And once you think about the science, you realize that it makes an enormous difference between those two. The model and all the complexity and all the detailed numerical work was absolutely useless because they had not asked the basic question, what's going on here? And it took Bob May to go there and say, this is the parameter that you should think about. And you need to go out now and find out more information about this. Once you've done that, maybe you can bring it back to the model and the model may tell you something useful. But it's this, uh, somehow this, this problem we have, which is that the people who produce the black box models, maybe there are a lot of them, they may be young and inexperienced, they don't really know how to interpret the results. And the politicians and decision takers are just given numbers and output from a black box model and they either have to accept it or reject it. And we need to change that culture and get people to start to ask the deeper questions, which you know you and your work do naturally. Um, All right, so I want to come to questions really, quick, really quickly, um, but um, really soon. But what do you think people and governments, which is not the same thing, should do? Right. You want to give yourself options. That's the largest contribution to dealing with uncertainty. And if you're talking about coronavirus, this is not a matter of pretending that you know what's going to happen, but giving yourself options which might turn out inexpensive options as far as possible, which might turn out to be valuable if things go in various directions. I think we've all seen the video of the Chinese putting up a hospital in two weeks. And the idea that you ask yourself questions about, can you build a very cheap hospital which is not the hospital that most people would like to go into, but the kind of hospital that ideally would be enable you to, if you needed a million to hospitalize a million people, might make it possible to do that, and would not be too large a waste of money if it turns <coughs> out that it's not needed. That's positively giving yourself options. We give examples of massively 
successful long-term historical options. Building the embankments <coughs> in London, nobody knew you were going to run a, a superhighway across the top of the embankment or put a tube line parallel to the sewer in it. Indeed, if you put it through the Green Book, which is the normal government project appraisal manual, you would have found yourself calculating the effect on the speed of handsome cabs and Fleet Street and misconceptions about the diseases which came from bad sewage, uh, which were prevalent in the, in the 1860s. Or the grid plan in Manhattan is another good example of that kind. And Manhattan gives you an example of cutting yourself off from options at the same time. If you ever wondered why it takes so long to get from Kennedy Airport into central Manhattan. This is my single favorite bit in the book. <laughs> uh, the answer is, the right, because Robert Moses, who built the expressways, who thought he knew the answer to almost every problem, and to some of them he did, but he built these expressways in, term, in, in ways such that they couldn't be, they couldn't be widened and they couldn't accommodate any additional transport links, such as like a, a, a light rail link, link going down the middle. If he had, as other people did in, in different cities, then you could transform that journey relatively quickly. Given what has happened over the 100 years, the, the 70 years since he did that, it's imp simply impossible. All right, uh, any other things before we go to? questions that people should do, or government should do, apart from options? We should open it to right, options. Right, fine. Let's have some questions. Uh, over here. Uh, it's a se second from the wall, and then I'll go over. Thank you. Uh, as the Deputy Government Actuary and the former, former President of the Institute and Faculty of Actuaries, I feel I should sort of make a defence um, <laughs> after John's comments. And I think it's the same defence that Gemma has made about economists, actually, which is that I don't really recognise your description of actuaries. I think actuaries build models um, because they're asked to, and I'll come in a minute as to why they're asked to. Um, but they understand perfectly well that they do not give you the answer to uh, what's the problems of this thing happening. Um, but I, I think, you know, Mervyn, you've talked about regulators of banks, and the same for insurance companies, that ask for capital to be assessed on a 1 in 200 year probability. How much capital do you need to withstand 199 years out of every 200? So they're kind of forcing you into the mindset, um, which is the wrong one, as you've just described. Yeah. Um, so I think the reason they've asked for that is because they want to know, you know which is, the real question is which are the, which are the most likely insurers to go, to go bust. Um, and, and so, but they're asking that for a sim simple metric as a way to answer that question. And maybe uh, there's, a, there's got to be a different way of answering that question. So let me take that you know, once in a hundred years event. That only makes sense if you think that everything that's happening in that hundred or two hundred year period is just the playing out of exactly the same set of events, same risks. But the world changes all the time. This is not true of thinking about the universe and the modeling of the solar system, it certainly is true about human events. And you know, it was interesting that after the financial crisis, two of our most distinguished econometricians, David Hendry and Graham Meisen, wrote a paper saying they've now discovered the secret to why the forecasts of the, or the failure to forecast the financial crisis came about. And they said it's because the world is non-stationary. And indeed, 
the world is non-stationary. And believe it or not, if in a non-stationary world, all conventional statistical inference fails. The whole effort of econometrics in the post-war period was to say, well, we know the economy is growing, so in that sense it's not stationary, but if you take percentage changes over time, then they, those things are stationary. So we can model the economy in that way. Uh, that, that presumes a great deal about the structure of the economy. And when you get events like the financial crisis, the basic assumption on which statistical inference is based on that period just falls down. And it, it just doesn't make any sense to pretend that we can talk about you know, once in a hundred year event because the, the world isn't stationary. What you have to do is to come to a pragmatic judgment about how much capital we ask banks to issue. And it, it, there is no scientific way of deciding what that number is. There are certainly numbers that you can use to inform that judgment. And that's certainly right. And that's like what Gemma was talking about. And it, we're certainly not saying that numbers don't come into decisions at all. They do. But you have to think carefully about what those numbers mean and ask yourself, what kind of number would help us make this decision? And an awful lot of the decision-making process now is linked to you know, black box forecasts. And as far as actuarial modelling are concerned, I think we would need an evening to debate that, and I hope we will. And I know there are some people who are quite interested in setting up that evening. I will just make a brief provocative comment, which is to say that we have now effectively closed down all private sector defined benefit schemes in the UK. And in my view, we've done so as, a, as the result of a combination of um, uh, poor regula inept regulation, misleading actuarial modelling, um, and a simple linguistic confusion, which confuses the absence of risk with certainty. Uh, the man who is um, going to be hanged tomorrow as certainty but not security and we're giving prospective pensioners in the UK uh, a certain kind of certainty, the security of knowing they will um, enjoy a very low standard of living in retirement and I don't think that's a great achievement. In fact, I think we're describing here one of the greatest policy blunders of the UK in the last 25 years. Thank but you. we can talk about that <laughs> on, a number, on another occasion. And sadly, that isn't this evening. Um, there's one on the aisle. Yep, there, and I'll come in. And I'll come to the back as well. Um, uh, parables are great, and narrative is, very, is certainly a way in which one can look at problems. But I wonder, uh, thinking about the limitations attached to narrative and parables, how you suggest we might structure those parables and that narrative to avoid the danger that it's simply a series of personal views. Um, because you're obviously going to put a lot of weight on that. So how do we do the analysis through that? Thank you very much. Would you like to say who you are? Sorry, I'm Andrew Lickerman from the London Business School. So we talk a lot about narratives in the book. And we give just as much weight to the importance of challenging narratives. So as you rightly say, there's no good just having a narrative for the sake of it. It has to be a narrative that helps us answer the question, what is going on here? And we have to devise mechanisms for ensuring that narratives get challenged. That's trying to avoid so-called groupthink. It's trying to make sure that decisions are discussed openly 
and that we're willing to change our minds and that people are not penalized for being seen to change their mind or change, change the narrative. The, the reason we stress narratives is, as John described, it isn't the way that people actually think about problems. The thing that struck me most was that all the economists I know who write papers relying on probabilities and publish them in learned journals and get Nobel Prize winners, when they think of their ideas, what do they do? They talk about them with other economists and they explain what they're thinking about in terms of stories, narratives. And having convinced other people there's something in it, then they go and write down the mathematics and, and so on. But it's not that you have to have this view that people always pursue their decisions in terms of probabilistic reasoning. We actually naturally use narratives. And it, it's linked to the other key thing we stress in the book, which is we make decisions often in groups, collectively. We're not just this single, isolated, rational economic person that the textbooks describe. So one of the, the, the key elements in designing a good decision-making process is ensuring that narratives get challenged. I mean, one of the things, and maybe Alan Budd here can comment on it, but the Monetary Policy Committee arrangement with nine people on that committee was set up not to have nine different precise macroeconomic forecasts, but to have a group of people that would discuss what the bank's prevailing narrative was and challenge it. And it would evolve and change over time. So I think that it's, narratives are crucial, but challenging narratives are just as important. And there are multiple narratives relative to a particular situation. I illustrate this with a, an evening I described when I'd arranged for a group of anthropologists and a group of economists to get together to see what they could learn from each other. It wasn't that easy. But at the end of it, we went down to the pub for a round of... Someone bought a round of drinks, which, of course, took one into an argument as to why people bought rounds of drinks for each other. And for the anthropologists, it was straightforward. This was ritual gift exchange. And one, one of them described how they'd observed ritual <coughs> gift-giving in the Bongo Bongo tribe somewhere or other. And the economists offered a diff different answer, which was it was to minimize the transactions costs of going and passing money across the bar. And when I thought about it afterwards, there wasn't actually a right answer and a wrong answer. All of these were, in a sense, part of the explanation, but none of them was the whole of it. It's what one anthropologist, Clifford Geertz, called thick descriptions, the strands of different explanation which you need in order to understand complex real-world phenomena. And that's what the kind of quantification obsession we've been talking about very often gets in the way of doing. Gemma. Yeah. I, I sort of agree with you. And I think John mentioned earlier the sort of example of the OBR forecast, which you might think of as being a pretty prominent example of a very spuriously precise forecast for five years of what's going on in the economy. But actually, partly beneath that is, so yes, those forecasts are informed by what's happened in the past, but they're also the collection of a set of informed judgments between a group of three people, principally on the Budget Responsibility Committee, discussing what do we really think is going on here? Do we think the past tells us something about what's going on with the future? And the fact that you have some 
quite precise numbers does clearly play quite an important role in the policy-making process of constraining and holding governments to account. I mean, you could have the OBR simply saying, well, we're not really quite sure what's going to happen. We think the economy will probably grow a bit over the next few years. There are, there are various different options out there. And the government could say, well, yes, we sort of broadly agree with the OBR's basic characterization, but we think we can probably spend a bit more, we could probably tax a bit less. And that would be a very different kind of world of policy making. So I think even... You have to describe what would be wrong with it, Gemma. <sighs> so because it's the truth. It would be the truth, but it would clearly be a world in which governments could get away with a lot more than they do. At the moment. And I'm not, it, it, yeah, may not be, yeah. it may not be wrong. I mean, you could take the OBR forecast, and they also present alternative forecasts for different worlds of imagining what would happen. So they have fan charts, which you can question because they're based on past experience, but they also present other alternative forecasts in the end section of their... And it's quite noticeable that the media never cover those things, and public debate struggles to actually sensibly discuss what the OBR are providing them with, which is a view that we don't know what the world is going to turn out like. There are alternative visions. We've provided you with those numbers, but actually people can't actually take on board all of those different no, possibilities. I, I, but to make intelligent decisions, they have to be educated to approach it in that way. I remember sitting next to someone on a flight back from France once, and I, I told the guy what I did, and he asked me, so what did I think was going to happen to the euro sterling exchange rate over the next three years? And I said, I didn't know. And then somehow it emerged that I knew gold, Gavin Davis, who was then at Goldman Sachs. And he said, haven't you asked Gavin what's going to happen? And I said, no. And then it got even worse, because he somehow tweaked to the fact that I knew Mervyn. And he said, you mean you haven't asked Mervyn what's going to happen to the euro sterling exchange rate? And I said, no. And to get across the idea that uh, not only might I not know the answer to this question, but the people in these positions didn't know the answer to these questions either. I don't know what you would have replied if I'd asked you, Mervyn, but I'm sure it wouldn't have been one euro, 19.3. There were many occasions on which at the Treasury Committee, when asked a question, I'd say, I don't know. And they'd say, well, what do you mean you don't know? And it's your job to know. And I would say, it isn't my job to know, because with great respect, neither you nor I can possibly know that. Now, I, I, the, the value of the OBR forecasts, I think, is that they do two things. One is that they help you to understand how numbers put together must add up. There are certain constraints, not just add up in an accounting sense, but that we know something about the relationship between, say, consumption and income and exports and so on. This, this can be helpful and valuable. And particularly what is useful is the ability to do sensitivity analysis, that is, you know, how would the <coughs> budget, for, budget deficit or expenditure and revenue forecast deviate under certain assumptions? It gives you an idea of order of magnitude. But the trouble is, that, and this is the reason why it is so difficult to present these in a way that it can be taken in a sensible and useful way. When you listen to a chancellor stand up in their budget speech, and I, I sort of can hear Gordon Brown's voice booming away. You know, the growth rate of the British economy will be 3.2% this year, 2.7% next year, 3.3% the year after, and so on. And then the figure for the you know, budget deficit will be you know, 12, 6. So it, this is a misuse of data and of numbers, and it's not helpful. And it's, it's, it's a very silly way to pretend 
that the black box models can be used in that way. Um, and, uh, you know, when, when I was doing economic consultancy, people would ring you up and ask questions like, what is the euro sterling exchange rate going to be in three years' time? And what I thought was the appropriate answer to that question is to say, um, uh, I don't know. If you tell me why you want to ask that question, we'll try and work out a sensible question to which it's possible to get the answer. Now, that didn't cut any ice. And it didn't cut any ice for several reasons, one of which was mostly the person who rung up had been told by some superior uh, or someone trying to fill in a spreadsheet to find an answer to this question. Uh, and secondly, because there was actually someone at an investment bank who would say, well, it's, we think it's going to be one euro 19 cents. Um, but the right answer is, why do you want to know this? And if we've defined why you want to know this, we'll try and work out some sensible strategies for dealing with the inevitable uncertainty about what that rate is going to be. And that is the way we've got to think about these problems. And you are indeed describing, Gemma, what happens at the moment. But it's giving both politicians and policymakers and the public illusions of certainty that doesn't exist and couldn't exist, and which they're not really taken in by anyway. When Gordon Brown made the statements that Mervyn described, no one took them all that seriously. I can get in. Uh, uh, there's two more questions. All right, when you say them, and let's just see. And sorry, there's more here, but I'm going to do it in the order of hands going up. Um, let's try and take these two and give um, the panel can bear to give micro answers to these incredibly interesting points. Yeah. <coughs> I'm Ben Alexander. Um, could I come back to what you mean by radical uncertainty? And I, I'm wondering whether in Donald Rumsfeld's colloquialisms you mean unknown unknowns, or does it also include known unknowns? And to put that into a more probabilistic sense, a situation where you have a distribution, but you don't know the questions to ask to ascertain the parameters, which arguably could have been the situation your hapless but probably wealthy CEO of Goldman Sachs found himself in, is that radical uncertainty? Or does radical uncertainty necessarily mean there isn't a distribution or certainly not a stable distribution which you can actually get your hands on? Great, thank you. Let's take it and let's take the other one at the same time. Uh, a question about trust and uh, you know, that sense of quantification is because there is a lack of trust in the narrative and people want to hold on to numbers as a way of saying, well, the answer must lie in these numbers. What do you think of that? Uh, and then imagination and how we bring imagination, that sort of grand narrative back in. Uh, the people who reviewed uh, the Fukushima disaster, uh, they ended their conclusions with... Uh, part of the reason that this happened was a failure of the imagination of the people who designed and defended this nuclear power plant to think that nature couldn't do something beyond their imagination. So, trust and, and imagination, please. Thanks. Okay. Unknown unknowns and trust. Um, the, the, there's a long answer, which I won't give, to the story of unknown unknowns, but it's in the book. I think it's rather interesting. And I'd invite people who want to pursue it to. Go on, say it. Buy the book. Go on, the book. Yeah. It is. It is so interesting that it's, yeah. it's worth it's far well more than the, the money price just of the book. for that uh, for, for that particular narrative. Is that it then? 
Uh, no, yeah, yeah, so <laughs> the, the short answer is your description of radical uncertainty is pretty accurate. Great. Right. Uh, There's no the, there is no stable distribution. Great. Uh, and the trust point? Uh, and on the trust point, uh, there's a really important issue there, which is that these kind of, well illustrated by these kind of financial models, which were trying to derive 95 or 99 percent probabilities. There are no 99 percent probabilities in the real world because there are always events which are, were not framed in terms of your underlying distribution. And that's why we need strategies that are robust and resilient uh, to deal with these. Yes, I mean, on your point of imagination and grand narrative, I think my two reflections on reading the book and sort of listening to this discussion is, firstly, um, you might be forgiven in reading the book to thinking we've got too many economists and too many experts. And actually, I think my takeaway would be that you sometimes have too few. So part of what we've been talking about is the tendency to construct black box models and for people to just use those and assume that the output that comes out of them is true without doing enough of the intelligent thinking of what is it that I'm assuming what am I drawing on to try and come up with that answer? So I think you actually need more experts to come up with that sort of imagination and, and narrative that helps understand what you're coming up with. Um, but also, I mean, your case of Fukushima, you need experts, but you need humble experts who aren't overly confident in their own ability and their own understanding of the world, that they acknowledge the, the point that there may be something they haven't thought of and they need to think about that as well. Humble experts. Um, <laughs> We're going to have to stop there, and we're just, just getting into the heart of it. I suspect that it's these points on narrative that uh, particularly would have fueled us if we had kept on, kept on going, say, another half hour, which we can't. But um, we're going to go next door, and those of you who want to join us for a glass of wine, and indeed uh, see uh, John and Mervyn um, signing their book, Radical Uncertainty, you can go and buy a copy next door. Um, please do do that. But in the meantime, can you uh, join me in thanking the three of us?